Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. As 2020 perhaps finally comes to a close, what are the biggest lessons we've learned? Today, we talk to investors from across BlackRock who share seven lessons they've learned this year from the markets. We'll hear about how the COVID-19 crisis compares to past financial crises, the technology and sustainability trends that got accelerated, and the resilience we saw from companies and policymakers. 2020 was a year of dramatic market volatility and the first recession we've seen since the global financial crisis. But we haven't seen a recession caused by a global health crisis before. So how similar or different is this recession compared to past crises? Lesson number one, the recession caused by COVID-19 is different from past recessions. This recession is entirely different. In fact, this entire economic cycle has been different. And that's because it's been created by this external threat and health risk, as opposed to something like an imbalance in the financial system or a huge amount of leverage or a slowdown in demand that had to do with incomes. That's Kate Moore, head of thematic strategy for the global allocation team. This was really an external shock. And so we've seen much more violent reactions in the market. And I think in terms of economic data, violent reactions on the way down. And now we're starting to see some pretty significant surprises on the way up. One of the big challenges is for investors and market participants and pundits is everyone wants to make these comparisons to history, right? Everyone wants to say in previous recessions, that the following four variables or four parts of the market performed in a certain way. And there's a comfort in using a historical playbook. But the truth of the matter is, this is nothing like previous market or economic experiences because of the external shock and the health crisis. And as such, we've had to really kind of evolve how we think about this, what the shape of the recovery might look like and what the speed of that recovery might look like. Plus, I think the other thing that's super different relative to other recessions is that this is leading to significant structural changes in behavior. And some of it will be quite enduring, even when we're able to gather together in person and when economic activity returns closer to normal. I mean, the similarities are that you kind of have a V shape to many of your economic and financial statistics. But what is different was the cause. That's Jeff Rosenberg portfolio manager for the systematic fixed income team. Prior financial crises or prior recessions you know, are typically lumped into two categories of causes. Either there's an internal overheating associated with the economy that is then met by a preemptive policy tightening by the Fed. That's kind of a classical recession and financial market crisis. Or you have an external financial market crisis that is a result of overheating in financial conditions, right? So classical one everybody thinks about, of course, is the global financial crisis and the excesses in the subprime and real estate lending markets that led to an overheating and then a collapse. What's different is that this one was obviously a health crisis that induced a self-inflicted crisis that we forced a shutdown of the economy. You basically stop the lifeblood of the real economy, which is money moving through the economy. And so the cascade into the financial markets was as a result of corporations drawing on their banks for backstop lines of credit to meet that cash flow need 
to fill the hole that was created by the COVID policy response. Well, you had the entire economy ask the financial markets to fill the hole. And so the financial markets were quickly overwhelmed. And that's how we saw it cascade from this kind of fundamental real economy impact into a financial economy impact that then fed back into a negative feedback loop that was later broken by central banks and policy intervention. But the initial crisis was accelerated by this negative feedback loop from first the real economy to the financial economy, then the financial economy back to the real economy through the loss of market functioning. I think it is different than prior recessions, in part because the size of government response around the world is really unprecedented. That's Michael Fredericks, head of income investing for the multi-asset strategies team. And so when you look at the size of some of the programs relative to the size of economies, again, it's just off the charts. The level of job losses were pretty jaw-dropping in the second and the beginning of the third quarter, but they were very industry-specific. So they tended to be very concentrated in the retail sector and the travel and leisure and hospitality sectors, but they've been impressively contained and not as broad-based as you typically see in a recession. So net-net, I think that's a real positive for the economy. The level of GDP growth in 2021 consensus is looking for about 4% GDP growth, so a pretty healthy rebound. So we're not going to claw back all of what we lost this year. That's going to take a few years, but we're definitely on a positive trajectory. So this year's crisis is different for a few reasons. It was caused by a health crisis, not a financial one. The impact to the economy was targeted at sectors directly hit by the pandemic, and we saw unprecedented action from governments and policymakers. And as a brief aside from our lessons, there's one other difference to highlight, the music we listened to. Back in April, Kate noted that the 2008 chart topper was oddly fitting for the state of the markets. Some of you might remember that Slow Ride as Low was topping the charts 12 years ago during the financial crisis. It wasn't just a catchy dance tune, but eerily appropriate given the market collapse. Low, low, low. So what music best describes this year? I think the song that best describes 2020 is Uneventful Days by Beck. Now, let me just say Beck's music keeps on getting better. This particular track was released in late November of 2019, but started to get a lot more airplay in the beginning part of 2020. I just can't think of a song that better captures the year. There's particularly this part of the chorus that talks about uneventful days and uneventful nights, and then later sort of evolves into never-ending days and never-ending nights. Time has warped in 2020, but to be fair, the song I've been listening to on repeat in 2020 is Colors by Black Pumas. It's just a great tune. Now that we have a soundtrack heading into 2021, let's get into our second lesson learned. COVID-19 has accelerated a number of long-term trends in the economy. Which trends do we have our eye on? I think there's a much more important trend from an economic and economic policy forward-looking outlook here that was accelerated by the COVID crisis, and that is the trend of inequality. Jeff Rosenberg again. And here I'm going to talk about inequality in terms of wealth and assets. This goes back to the 2008 financial crisis and the policy response then was 
to use financial repression, to use low interest rates, to use a channel that then Bernanke called the portfolio rebalance channel, to try to rebuild wealth through subsidizing housing. Remember in the global financial crisis, it was a collapse in housing values that collapsed real economy confidence. So the fastest way back was to reflate financial assets. That was a successful intervention, but it had an undercurrent of a cost. And that cost was to exacerbate the differences between asset owners, people who had wealth and exposure to the benefits of asset reflation from those who didn't. And the COVID crisis has exacerbated that gap even further. I think the most powerful trend and change has been an acceleration in the adoption and investment in digital platforms. This is true across all companies in all industries. Kate Moore again. You know, even before the pandemic, we really had started to see a huge differentiation between companies that had adopted digital platforms and were being kind of more innovative in the way that they were interacting with consumers or their end users, and those that were really sticking to maybe sometimes decades old business models. But now everyone has sort of caught the religion, if you will. Now, some people have said that some of that spend will decelerate once we actually get back to kind of a more normal economic activity. And I would disagree. I think this has just been a step change in a powerful trend that was already in place. We had everything about digital experiences. And I think all of that accelerated across COVID and those digital experiences manifest in probably a dozen different categories. Everything from obviously commerce and retail to food and grocery and healthcare and education. That's Tony Kim, portfolio manager and head of the technology sector for the Fundamental Active Equities team. And then it extended, which I think was surprising, into other industries and accelerated that transition. We saw that in auto, not just the electric vehicle craze, but you can't go into car dealerships to buy used cars. Well, you can buy those through a digitally native experience where you don't have to go into a dealership. Accelerated insurance, the adoption of new kinds of insurance policies and these digitally native insurance programs. And then even in agriculture, extended all the way into that in terms of getting that supply chain, all the pressures and inefficiencies in that supply chain to get from the farm to the table. You saw the digital migration accelerate. We did see a continued and stronger interest in sustainable investing. And there, I think, are many reasons for that. That's Ashley Schulten, head of ESG investing for the Global Fixed Income Team. But I think also, too, there were other themes, whether it was continued sense of deglobalization, deurbanization, if you will, those of us who lived in cities thinking about moving to suburbs, but even within cities, thinking about the concept of livable cities, right? Moving toward more public transport or bike shares or public spaces. I think another theme that has picked up is this idea of the flexible working model. We flirted with this idea of flex time, and now we've really fast forward into this situation where it seems very viable that we could work from home or remotely several days a week, that we have the technology set up to do that. COVID-19 fueled a number of longer-term trends this year, like technology and sustainability. Our next two lessons focus in on each of these trends. Lesson number three, the technology industry has thrived this year and tech has expanded beyond just the tech sector. The biggest lesson 
learned is the resilience of the technology industry, the resilience of many of the companies, and really the resilience of maybe the U.S. economy. Tony Kim again. You would have thought in a global pandemic and a macroeconomic hit that the technology sector, like in past recessions, would have been impacted just as much or more than others. But that was not the case. It was quite the opposite. So this resilience, especially in the companies themselves, was something that really came to fore. As Tony mentioned, unlike past crises, technology didn't falter this year, it thrived. Was the resilience of technology due to COVID and the rise of digital or something deeper? While the pandemic obviously was a global calamity and had just tremendous impacts, the reason the technology companies have done well is not because of the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated certain things, but the motion was already in place many, many years prior to the pandemic. And I always say the technology industry is driven not by policy, not by pandemics and government policy or tax rates or whatever, even GDP per se. It's driven by this innovation and the speed of change. And technology companies thrive when there is high rate of change. And then we had a tremendous high rate of change an accelerated rate of change because of the pandemic. If we enter a world where that rate of change slows down, decelerates or stops, then technology companies will not do well. So the question is, will it continue in 2021? Will the rate of change be as elevated as it was in 2020? Maybe not as high, but I think in general, this world that we live in, in the 21st century, the rate of change has been elevated from what I've seen over the last decade. And I see no signs of that abatement. And you know, the other thing I would say is, it is now extending into literally every single industry on this planet. There is not a single industry that is not being somewhat impacted or utilizing technology. So I don't see that stopping. Tony noted that while innovation in technology has been happening for years, one major change is that technology is now expanding beyond the sector itself. How else did technology change in 2020? The tech sector for a long, long time always engaged in a war of creative destruction amongst itself. My new tech is better than the last new tech. And the technology companies often engaged in battle on its particular domain. My chip is better than your chip. My code is better than your code, et cetera. But what I think the pandemic really kind of highlighted, and these were trends already happening, but accelerated, is tech moving beyond the tech into other non-traditional industries. And they've invaded basically every other industry, financial services, education, healthcare, agriculture, insurance, construction, automotive, manufacturing, you name it. There's all these new tech companies being created and they're attacking these non-traditional tech industries at an accelerated pace. And this is what I saw this year. And the second thing is not really a technology per se, it's on the financing side. And we saw a new wave of what they call SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies, basically a way to bring private unicorns that might have not gone public for maybe three, four or five years to be pulled forward, merging into these public SPACs and bringing a whole nother wave of private technology companies to the public market sooner and faster than they would. And so this whole new way of financing technology companies also so happened to really explode in 2020. 
In addition to technology, another trend that was accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic was sustainability. Which brings us to lesson number four. Sustainable investing is becoming central to investing overall. So I think in 2020, what has been most impressive to me is this realization of how connected we all are, even in a world that's deglobalizing. That's Ashley Schulten. I think it's reinforced the small degrees of separation that we can have. And I think we've seen that, whether it's from tight contact tracing or how quickly supply chains got disruptive, that we are so connected globally. I think that it's inspiring in a way to think about when we're forced to change and really collectively take action, that we can really make a difference very quickly. And so for me, it's helpful to think about that in the context of climate change. If we can get behind getting a vaccine around COVID or regulatory support around this, we can take action on climate change. Sustainability has become top of mind. So what's behind this growth? And what actions are we seeing from investors, corporations, and governments? The one thing is this sense, I think, of a collective vulnerability, perhaps, that COVID has put onto us, that we do need to focus on these existential issues sooner rather than later. We all know the connections between climate change and further pandemics, but also climate change in terms of its existential threat on our survival. And I think that has really hit home to people this year. I think also that we've continued to see government support around the Paris goals. And so you've had a number of countries that have further stressed their willingness to adhere to their Paris goals and make public pronouncements and announcements from governments and also from corporations about their goal to be net zero by 2050. I think also... We have seen this year a strong performance in sustainable funds. But I think what we've shown is that there are a lot of aspects about sustainable investing that can help provide protection and downside, can help abate volatility in portfolios and those types of things. And then finally, I think that we are all individuals, right? Investors, we're all individuals and we're sitting in nature now and we've seen the planet take a breath. And we've seen what happens to air pollution and we've seen what happens to the water canals in Venice or any of these anecdotal stories that you can think of and that we appreciate those and those are important to us. And so I think that that has further reinforced people's desire to do a little bit more with their money rather than just think about at the end of the day, what is their financial yield return? Sustainability and ESG has really been at the forefront in Europe for many years, but particularly this year, you've seen yet another acceleration here. That's Becky McKinley Rowe co-head of the fundamental active equities business. There's a 750 billion euro European recovery fund, and that's actually going to kick off in 2021. And roughly 80% of that spending should be focused on green and digital transition. So this will continue to be a tailwind for Europe's cutting edge companies that are involved in this space. But again, it shows that continued focus and acceleration around sustainability topic and themes. But I think what's interesting also is that the recovery plans that we have around this have really been centered on Build Back Better. Ashley Schulten again. So whether we're thinking about Green New Deals in Europe or in the U.S., is how do we rebuild in a way that takes into account climate considerations, takes into account social justice issues, and leads us to a place that we're more resilient on the back end of this than we were going in. One theme that's come up, resilience. Despite the year we've had, we've seen strength and determination from the global economy and the people within it. Our fifth lesson, companies have shown resilience through the pandemic. 
I think for 2020, there's been lots of lessons that have been learned. But I think one thing that really springs to mind is resilience, because I think what we saw was tremendous resilience from people and I think tremendous resilience from businesses, not just to carry on as business as usual, but to try and sort of thrive and get through it and be stronger at the other end. That's Becky McKinley Rowe. I think being in fundamental equities and sitting in EMEA, the one thing that I've definitely learned from 2020 is about not getting wrapped up in the eye of the storm and really trying to unpack things, to focus on the fundamentals. Why do the investors own a certain company? And has the long-term thesis changed because of the situation that we're in here and now? And it's really trying to see through those moments of extreme, I think, are definite lessons. So there was a real question at the beginning of the pandemic, whether or not we were going to see mass bankruptcies and whether or not companies were going to really kind of fall apart at the seams. Kate Moore again. And if there's one thing equity investors have learned throughout the course of 2020, or maybe not just learned, but this idea has been reinforced, is that most companies, and certainly those that are publicly listed in the large cap space in particular, are incredibly resilient We first started to see this hint in the second quarter earnings, where we knew the economy was in terrible shape. There were large swaths of the U.S. that were shut down, and the global economy felt like it had ground to a halt. But companies were producing better-than-expected earnings, certainly better than the analysts had forecast, and were giving slightly more constructive guidance. And why was this? It's because they really focused on their cost control. I mean, even in an environment where the top line, where revenue growth was relatively anemic, in some cases quite negative, companies cut their costs, they streamlined their businesses, and they delivered much better earnings. And this was doubled and tripled in third quarter earnings. For example, in third quarter, analysts were expecting earnings to decline anywhere between, say, 18 and 20 percent year over year. And when all earnings were reported, it was much closer to like an 8 percent decline year over year. And it was really concentrated, the bulk of that, in sectors you would expect that were disrupted, like entertainment and travel and leisure and businesses that relied on people congregating together, service-oriented businesses. So I think the big message from the pandemic is don't bet against corporate resilience, don't bet against corporate flexibility, and don't bet against companies that are investing in technology to improve their efficiencies, even in challenging economic environments. As the global economy came to a standstill earlier this year, companies were forced to pivot their business models to survive. As Becky and Kate mentioned, the resilience exhibited by companies was quite impressive. But Kate talked about how the decline in earnings was focused on areas of the economy that were disrupted by the pandemic. Sectors like entertainment and travel and services struggled. Which brings us to lesson number six. COVID has created clear winners and losers in the economy. Kate shares her thoughts from her seat in the U.S., And Becky gives her perspective on the ground in Europe. So the winners and losers this year really were around the pandemic. And companies that had the digital platforms that were already positioned to serve customers and their end users in an environment where people couldn't gather together, outperform. And an interesting stat here is that the companies that had premium valuations to the market, you'd say in January or February of 2020, actually continued to see multiple expansion throughout the course of the year. And those that were in more structurally impaired sectors or specific companies and businesses that just 
didn't have the right platform and business model continued to get cheaper. And so the winners won more and the losers lost more. And that was a very powerful trend throughout the course of this year. Now, in terms of what wins and loses next year, I mean, a lot of it is going to be about the continuation of this resilience theme. Do companies continue to make the smart investments and control their costs throughout the course of next year? I think we're going to see more people invest in the reopening trades, companies that will benefit from a more normal economic activity. But I would note there is still a bifurcation here where some companies and some industries have the ability to operate in a more remote environment because it's going to take a while for us all to get the vaccine. Healthy adults won't get it till the end of the second quarter, perhaps beginning of the third. And that's a long way to go. We've got another couple of quarters of real tough work ahead of us. So I think even in the travel, leisure, entertainment, community service space, we're going to see some of those businesses do very well and some of them struggle a little bit. And a lot's going to depend on how much they've adapted their business model. If I think within Europe, the IT sector has been a big winner. And that really comes down to the semis stocks that you've got within Europe and the long-term trends there, where you're seeing greater demand and greater requirement for more efficient computing power, whether that's shift to electric vehicles, whether that's AI, automation, Probably a less obvious one would be the utilities sector. This is a sector which is that transition to renewables, where you're now seeing greater predictability of their cash flows. You're seeing better cost and productivity gains. And so really, this is another sector which is really evolving to be fit for purpose in the future, all around renewable. If we think about the losers in 2020, it's the flip side of what we've seen in technology. Clearly, it's been the traditional bricks and mortar. It's been the retail, whether that's out of town, big retail centres or retail in a high street. It's just the ability to get footfall to actually get the traffic in to be able to actually make the returns that you'd need to cover your costs. It was a trend that was in existence pre-COVID, and it will continue to be challenging as more and more of the consumers really demand that efficiency. It's probably no surprise that the areas of the economy that shine this year were in areas like technology. Those that struggled were in areas like travel, entertainment, and other services. Regardless, though, the pandemic caused the economy overall to come to a grinding halt. When the downturn first started in the spring, we saw policymakers step in in a way they haven't before to mitigate the impact. Our seventh and final lesson, you can't fight policymakers. It wasn't so much a new lesson that I learned in 2020, but kind of a reinforcing of a lesson that we've all learned over the last decade, which is do not fight policymakers. And there's a phrase that we've talked about before, which is markets stop panicking when policymakers start panicking. Policymakers started to panic and employed really aggressive tools and came to market much sooner during this crisis than we've ever seen before, even over the last decade. And if there's a big investing lesson, it is that policymakers are on their front foot at this era in a time when we really needed it. We have learned that our central bankers are on the job. That's Jeff Rosenberg. Now, in the height of the crisis, it took them a little while. I mean, we were looking at what was going on in terms of the degradation of performance, market functioning. There were a lot of phone calls that were going back and forth. I was part of some of those. And 
they eventually got the right answer. And that's the most important takeaway is that the central bank policy response can be very effective to dealing with market functioning, to deal with uncertainty and to deal with fundamentally what was at the heart of this COVID crisis, which was a liquidity crisis. What we'll see, however, are some of the limits to central bank policies is what they can't deal with are some of the more longer run fundamental outcomes of the COVID crisis, things that liquidity solutions and low interest rates really can't address, such as inequality and the differential impact that the COVID crisis has had across the spectrum of our society. As Kate and Jeff both mentioned, central bankers were on the job when the economy needed them most. But what do central bank actions mean for investors? The Federal Reserve bought many parts of the bond market, mainly U.S. treasuries, agency mortgages, and even investment-grade rated bonds. And so their buying behavior drove up prices and drove down yields to incredibly low levels. Michael Fredericks again. And so here we are today looking at an index like the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, which has a yield of about one and a quarter percent, which is very close to the all-time lows. So looking forward, sets up a more challenging environment for fixed income investors, particularly those that are heavily invested in the safest parts of the bond market. That's going to be a challenge. The other consequence of central bank response has been that I think we've seen really a very dramatic repricing of the growth part of the equity market. We've seen the fastest growing stocks really benefit from a new lower interest rate environment. So the discount rate is a lot lower than it has been in many, many years near all-time lows. And that triggered a big repricing and growth. What I thought was interesting, though, was that there were many parts of the equity market that did not benefit or did not participate nearly as much in price appreciation this year. And one thing that really sticks out at us is the relatively weak performance of dividend-paying stocks. So here you've got investment-grade bond yields that are very, very low levels. And for many, many companies, you can earn a lot more yield by buying the company's stock and getting that dividend. So a lot of companies grow their dividend, raise their dividend regularly, if not annually. And you just don't get that in fixed income. That's what it says on the label. It's fixed income. Dividend growth, I think, is really valuable. And I think it's going to really come back into favor as investors come to terms with these really low interest rates. With bond yields and interest rates at all-time lows, have central banks used up their toolkit this year? Or is there still room for further action should the economy need it? Well, I think they do have tools left, but they probably aren't going to use them. So monetary policy is incredibly accommodative already. The Fed funds rate, which controls short-term interest rates in the U.S., is at zero, and it's probably going to stay there for the next several years. That's not to say that longer-term interest rates, which the Fed has less influence over, can't move higher, but we think that they'll actually be fairly contained. And frankly, what's not getting enough airtime is the fact that real yields are quite low. So steadily over the course of the year, inflation expectations have moved higher. And that's really important because when you think about an investor who might own the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, that currently has a yield of about 1%. But inflation over the next 10 years is expected to be about 2%. So that investor is inherently stepping into an investment that's going to have a negative 1% 
real return over the next 10 years, which is fairly depressing, but it's certainly consistent with this idea that there's a lot of stimulus and very easy policy out there. And the investor reaction to these really low negative real yields is that they're going to look for better opportunities and they're going to look out the risk spectrum. And I think that's exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. They want to see people investing more and taking more risk and getting out of cash. You know, there's a big question about central bank efficacy at the zero lower bound. Certainly, the Fed is going to continue to support the recovery by keeping its policy in place. The biggest change in the central bank policy toolkit is removing the symmetric response to employment and the preemptive view on inflation. I don't think the toolkit is empty, but I think it is more limited. And I think the best that the Fed and global central bank policymakers can do at this point is to help support the fiscal policy initiatives from fiscal policymakers. And that's going to be to keep the cost of fiscal policy low by keeping borrowing rates for sovereigns low through policies of financial support, asset purchases, broadly under the rubric of financial repression narrowly under the rubric of yield curve control and asset purchases and forward guidance. And I think we'll see more of that in 2021. As we look back on an eventful year, there's a lot we've learned. Let's sum it up. Lesson number one, the recession caused by COVID-19 is different from past recessions. Number two, COVID-19 has accelerated a number of long-term trends in the economy. Lesson three, Technology is one of those trends, and now more than ever, tech is expanding beyond the tech sector. Number four, sustainability is becoming central to investing. Number five, companies displayed incredible resilience this year. But lesson six, COVID did create winners and losers in the economy. And finally, lesson number seven, policymakers are key to keeping the global economy afloat. That's it for this episode of The Bid. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020. 7743 3000. 
registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com slash mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.